Well, it's a great privilege to be with you all this morning. I enjoyed sharing with the uh, Adult Bible Fellowship class. We got into quite a bit of detail on what it means to do Bible translation. I won't do that to you this hour, but again, I wanted to say thank you for being such a welcoming church, for being our supporters for, I think, about 25 years or so, and for praying for us regularly, for encouraging us. We do appreciate you all very much, and thank you, Pastor Marty, for the opportunity, the privilege to have the pulpit today. Um, My name is Todd Price, and uh, I'm a missionary, and my family and I are doing Bible translation with Roma, or gypsies. And um, Roma are those who I mentioned in Sunday school came from India years ago, about a thousand years ago. Now they're spread out through all parts of um, Europe, and we're doing translation into five of the languages that they speak. This is our prayer card, and I just want to mention it's a fairly new one, so probably most of you don't have it. Please pick one up um, on the way out when you go in the foyer as a reminder to pray for us. It it means a lot to know that you're standing with us. Uh, I believe it was was William Carey who told his invalid sister, I will go. I will go to India to take the gospel. I will go as long as you hold the ropes. So holding the ropes means praying for us, supporting us, encouraging us. So please pick up a prayer card, and if you'd like to get our regular updates, you can sign up for them. We can send them by email, we can send them by regular mail, or it's also on social media. And that's such an important part of of knowing that you're standing with us, that we can share prayer requests, sometimes general for what's going on, sometimes emergency things we can just quickly send out uh, a prayer bulletin for, and that does mean so much to us. In this picture uh, are the three children we have at home. Uh, Kirsten is 18. She just turned 18 on Valentine's Day. And then with us today, Daniel, who's 13, and Ariella, who is 10. We do have uh, four other children, Timothy, Jonathan, Elizabeth, and Matthew. Many of you prayed for Matthew during the time after his motorcycle accident in January of 2020 when he was in the hospital for about 45 days, uh, 11 different surgeries, and ended up losing his dominant arm, uh, having it amputated at the elbow. So thank you for praying for him. He's doing well. Uh, He lived with us for a couple years to kind of get back on his feet, but now he lives on his own in Atlanta, uh, working as a uh, software designer in UX. And we're thankful for how the Lord brought him through and for your, uh, many of you prayed for him and and asked regularly about him. So we do appreciate that. We appreciate very much your, your love for him and your support. We did come back from the field at that time. Uh, We moved from Croatia to the U.S. We're living in Kansas City now, and we're still in full-time missionary work, but through the wonders of Zoom and Skype, I can do it all from here. Uh, We came also to be here for our parents. My father was ill and passed away um, last year. Pam's dad passed away a few months after that. Um, Her mother is 91. We just moved her up to Kansas City and, and bought a house nearby where she will be, and then my mother's here in in Oklahoma City uh, in a nursing home. So this was a time that we didn't plan it this way, but uh, God chose to bring us back. We're here for family, but also in his providence, things have worked with Bible translation so that now I'm a consultant, which means you pretty much can live anywhere, and we do it all online uh, with just a few trips overseas. So plugging away on that, and God has kind of changed our path, but not our, our passion. This morning, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 8, 1 to 12. When Pastor Marty mentioned the series you were going through, I thought, oh, that's incredible. I was thinking of uh, that very um, 
idea of the passages in Ezra and Nehemiah fitting in actually very, very well with Bible translation. So it was, it was quite neat to see that you've been in that study as well. Before we read our passage, I just want to give you a quick update. You may already know this, or a little bit of a setting, rather. Um, now, the Israelites had been in captivity in Babylonia for many, many years. Later, they were finally allowed to return. Uh, some of the Israelites came back to Judah, to the Promised Land, when Zerubbabel led a group in 538 B.C. And then some others returned later in different waves under Ezra and under Nehemiah. Jerusalem, of course, had been destroyed um, by the Babylonians, so the first order of business was to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. And now um, Nehemiah was the governor who organized all the rebuilding, and then Ezra was a priest and a scribe, and he was leading the spiritual reformation, so to speak, of a return to the Lord. And he led that uh, by guiding the people spiritually. So in our passage, we're going to read about a time when all the people gathered together, and Ezra gathered with them and read to them the Word of God in a public gathering. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah 8, and we will read this together. I would ask you if you're able to stand in honor of God's Word, please. I'm reading this morning from the ESV. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand and the elders of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose, and beside him stood Matathiel, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maesa on his right hand, and Padiah, Mesheah, Mokaijah, Hashan, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning I want to point out a few principles that this passage illustrates. 
Um, it also actually illustrates the need for Bible translation, and we will look at that. But it really also emphasizes a proper response to God's word. You saw that the people had a, a very commendable attitude and a proper preparation for the word. We'll look at that. A deep reverence for the word of God. As I said, we'll also see in this passage the need for translation of God's word. And then finally, a proper response to God's word. Let's look here in verses 7 and 8. This gives a list of names of certain Levites that um, were helping Ezra at that time. And it says in verses 7 and 8 that they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, more than likely when Ezra was reading, he was reading the Bible to them in the original Hebrew. But not all the people at that time understood Hebrew. Many of them had grown up, as I mentioned, in Babylon. They had been taken into captivity 70 years, actually more than that. And by then, many of the people were, were born in captivity and raised, and there they spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. So in order to make sure that the people understood it, it says that the Levites explained it to them. They may have translated it into Aramaic so that the people could understand, or they may have simply explained the meaning, the meaning of the text so that the people would understand the meaning. But that is the point. That is the point of Bible translation. We want to make sure that all people, everyone in the world, has God's word in a language, in a translation that they understand. In the same way that Ezra and, and the Levites wanted to make sure that everyone understood the word of God, that's what Bible translators do today. We do all we can to make sure that everyone has access to God's word in a translation that they understand. How are we doing in Bible translation? Let me just give you some statistics before we, we look more at the passage today. Um, how are we doing? When I say we, not me, but the church, you know, it's been 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus returned to heaven. He gave us a commission to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations. Now, I don't expect you to see that. I know it's really small, but I, I just did want you to get kind of the infograph, just the idea, and I'll, I'll point out uh, what some of these numbers mean. First of all, um, there are 7,378 languages that we know of, okay? A lot of languages in the world. Now, if you look at the, the left-hand side, you can see kind of the, the small number of green. Of those 7,000 languages, 717 have full Bibles, like we do in English. We have a full Bible translation. In fact, we have tons of them. There are well over 100 translations just in English. But of the 7,000 languages, only 700 have a full Bible. Now, that covers 5.75 billion people. So that's wonderful, okay? That's great that that many people have God's Word. But there are more than 8 billion people in the world. So that still leaves a lot who don't have a full Bible. So the numbers are 1,582 languages that have just the New Testament. That's another 830 million people. That's wonderful. Praise God that that many people have at least the New Testament. The, other, the next one there, 1,196 languages have portions of the Bible. What does that mean? Maybe they have a gospel. Maybe they have some Old Testament stories. Maybe they have some Psalms or Proverbs, but that's all. And that's another 457 million people. But that still leaves... 
3,883 languages and 220 million people. That's a lot of people. So I will say this, not every one of those languages needs a translation. Some of those are small languages that are dying out, they're not being passed on, and since Bible translation takes a good 15 to 25 years, it's not logical or a good investment to translate into a language where all the people will be dead when you're done. So not all of them need that. And sometimes the people speak several languages and they're just as well served with a different one. But having said that, we still have today 1,892 languages spoken by 145 million people with no scripture at all. If you go out on our booth, you'll see a Bible, but you open it up and it's completely empty. And that's for 1,800 languages in the world, that is their Bible. They couldn't get up this morning and have a quiet time in a Bible in their mother tongue. If they were to open this pretend Bible, it would be completely blank. So that means if you add all this up, if you add up all these statistics, the current numbers are there are a potential of 4,670 languages spoken by 1,432,000,000 people who still need some Bible translation. They may need the whole Bible, they may need the Old Testament, um, but there's still a need for that. That's staggering. 2,000 years after Jesus has already left and given us this commission that we still are behind 4,600 languages, one and a half billion people without it. So that is my challenge to you this morning. Bible translation is not done. The task is not finished. There's still a huge need. And maybe God wants to use you. Maybe you're young, maybe you're old, but maybe you've never thought about the fact that, you know what, I have a privilege, and with privilege comes responsibility. I have God's word in my language. I've been taught it all my life. I have the ability to give it to someone else. What am I doing about that? Just as Ezra and the Levites wanted to make sure that the people of Judah understood God's word, so we also should have that passion that same desire that everyone have access to the Word of God in a way that they can understand best. Now, returning to our text, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to see several things. It says, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. We see commitment. Everybody was there. We also see initiative. I find it interesting that the people gathered and the people asked Ezra. Marty, how'd you like to say, Marty, please come. We, we, we want you to come. Let's, let's start a meeting at, uh, let's say, from 6 a.m. to noon every Saturday. Would you do that? If the people were that hungry for God's word, they initiated it, and they all got together. It says they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. They're the ones who did it. And then it says both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. So it wasn't just adults. It was definitely teenagers, kids. Anybody who could understand was gathered there. It says also that they really sacrificed. They were there from dawn until midday. So in light of that, Marty said I could preach for six hours. I think that was, I think that was right. So they stood, amen. <laughs> they stood and they listened that whole time, six, seven hours. And it, it says they paid attention. They made a priority to God's word. It, it required commitment. It required dedication. It required sacrifice. Now, we roll our eyes, but, you know, we're dedicated to other things, right? You know the three major religions in America today, football, 
basketball and baseball. I live in Kansas City, and we drive by the uh, Arrowhead Stadium, and I think of it as the temple, you know. On Sunday mornings, man, people are paying 25 bucks to park. They're pay- I don't know how much they're paying. They spend hours there. They go and tailgate, you know, but we're, we gripe if Marty goes five minutes over, right? We have to just keep it all in perspective. We're committed, but we're committed to what we want to be committed to. So these people made a commitment to the Word of God. I'm not against sports. I'm not against doing things like that. But let's just keep it in perspective. Sometimes we think, oh, it's such a sacrifice. But that's because we're looking at it perhaps from the wrong angle. These people had a hunger for God's Word and a reverence for it. They stood up. That's one reason I had you stand. Some churches do that. Some don't. It's not, it's not so much the literal standing. But it is an attitude of respect. When they saw him get up and open the scroll, they said, wow. This is the word of God. And out of honor for that, they stood and gave their their full attention. It says that he opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above them. And as he opened it, the people stood. And then it says in verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. To bless the Lord is just a Hebrew way of saying to praise him. Um, Maybe he did what, what David did in 1 Chronicles 29. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head overall. So that's what we did this morning, right? We praised him. We, we blessed him. We praised him. And that's very appropriate. How wonderful to prepare our hearts through worship before hearing God's word. Very, very biblical. And that they did with Ezra blessing and praising God in uh, this chapter as well. It says, look at how the people responded. Oops, I went too far. Uh, Nehemiah 8, 6. All the people answered, amen, amen lifting up their heads, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They agreed with what Ezra said, which is the meaning of amen. They lifted up their hands as an indication of prayer to God and their dependence and need for him. It says that they bowed down with their faces to the earth. They prostrated themselves. They showed worship and showed humility. When we come to God's word, that's the proper response, to praise him for who he is and that he's given us his word and also to humble our hearts, to prostrate our spirits, so to speak, to worship him in humility. God, this is your word. Their hearts were in it. They responded with praise and they responded with reverence to God. And then after they heard what God said, look how they responded in verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites taught the people. They said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of God. Now, this passage doesn't, does not tell us why they were crying, but more than likely it was tears of repentance. They realized after listening to God's word that they hadn't been obeying it. As I said, many of these people had grown up in captivity in Babylon. There was no temple They couldn't go to carry out the sacrifices. They couldn't fulfill all the literal commands there, and they were broken by that. Maybe it was a similar response to what happened when Josiah heard the law. You know that 
they were renovating the temple. They found the scroll and they brought it to the king and they read it to him. And in 2 Kings rather, 22, 11 to 13, it says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. They realized that they hadn't obeyed. And they were cut to the heart. They were, they were convicted by that. Perhaps they had not even heard these commands. Maybe it was the first time. Or maybe they'd heard it, but they'd just forgotten. They hadn't, had, they hadn't been putting it into practice, and now they were cut to the heart. Um, they knew that they were in trouble because the law of Moses was clear that if the people didn't obey God, they would be punished, and that's exactly what had happened. That's why they were in the captivity, in exile for so long. God had punished them for not obeying. So now the people were, were crying, they were sorry, they were repentant, and they were probably afraid. And that is the type of response we want to God's word, just like on the day of Pentecost when, Paul, when Peter preached, the people were cut to the heart. They were moved, and they said, what, what, what do we need to do? However, the response here, although it was good, it was not completely appropriate, and we'll see that. Uh, we know that because Nehemiah and Ezra had to correct them. He said, do not mourn or weep. They said, let me go back to these next verses. Uh, verse 10, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved grieved. So they had responded to God's word, not in a bad way, but in an incomplete way. They had mourned for their sins, and, and that's good. If you look in your bulletin, there's a quote from Matthew Henry, the better we understand the word of God, the more comfort we shall find in it. For the darkness of trouble arises from the darkness of ignorance and mistake. When the words were first disclosed to them, they wept, but when they understood them, they rejoiced, finding at length precious promises made to those who repented and reformed, and that, theref and that therefore there was hope in Israel. Now, earlier in Ezra chapters 8 and 9, Edra, Ezra did call a fast. There was a time for fasting and a time for mourning, but not now. Now, in this passage in Nehemiah 8, it's a time to rejoice. Gordon Davies says he began by proclaiming a fast and doing penance, Ezra 8 and 9. He ends by urging rest and celebration. Why? Well, I think there are two reasons. First of all, this day was a holiday, uh, the day on which they were meeting. It says this day is holy to the Lord. It was the festival of trumpets. God had commanded that during that festival they were to rejoice. God commanded certain times to humble themselves, to fast and repent, and other times to rejoice and to feast. So this was actually that day, the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. And secondly, even though, and this is a bigger picture, even though they had sinned, there was provision, there was grace available. Nehemiah 8.12, 
Uh, we'll get to that phrase a little later in a more, little more detail, but it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, as I read this, I've always thought that was kind of an odd thing to say in this context, but setting it a little deeper, I think I understand why now. The word that's used for strength is not just your normal strong, be, be strong or strength. It's the word for protection, the word for a stronghold, a safe place, a place of refuge. If you were in the Sunday school hour, um, you heard me talk about the importance of translating certain words correctly. One of them is genitives or of. What does it mean, love of God? Is that God's love for us or our love for him? Well, I think in the broader context here, when it says the joy of the Lord, it's not talking about our joy in him. It's actually talking about his joy in us. The Lord's joy. The Lord's joy in his people is a stronghold. He's not going to destroy us. He is not going to give us the punishment we deserve. He is a stronghold. He is a place of refuge. He delights in us. In fact, it says this in Zephaniah 3. Look at this, how it fits just perfectly with the same idea that Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites were saying, that how God delights in us and how he protects us. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And then 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn, just like here in Nehemiah, for the festival. The festival of trumpets is a good example here. So that you will no longer suffer reproach. God had made provision for them. Yes, there was a time to, to weep and to fast and to repent. But God rejoiced over them and he would protect them. He had provided. He had punished them in Babylon, but he had brought them back. He'd reestablished them in the promised land. And now this holy city had been rebuilt in the temple also. So there they now had the complete picture. There was a time to weep, but it wasn't now. Now was a time to rejoice. And I've entitled this, The People Rejoiced When They Understood. When they understood what God's word was saying, they responded with rejoicing. God had made provision for them. He would protect them from judgment. He had provided a way. Now they understood. Matthew Henry says, Holy mourning makes way for holy mirth. Those that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Those that tremble at the convictions of the word may triumph in the consolations of it. Having a proper response. Yes, a time to respond in repentance. And yes, a time to respond with rejoicing. Because the Lord rejoices over us. The Lord is our stronghold. The last verse, uh, verse 12, says, All the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You know, I have a new idea for Hobby Lobby. You know how they have the, the Bible verses on the wall? I think they should have one that says, go your way and eat the fat. <laughs> it's in the Bible, right? Eat the fat. Wow, that sounds good. Speaking of translation, we don't say eat the fat. We would say eat rich foods. That's the idea. Eat rich foods. Enjoy it. Drink the sweet wine. So he's saying to them, um, now is a time of rejoicing. Now is a time to be grateful. 
So this festival, this really fits in. I said the festival of the temples, the, of the, sorry, the festival of the trumpets. That's why he was doing that. Um, in other words, part of the festival was sharing with one another, uh, having the food and sharing it with the poor. He says that they sent to those who didn't have anything prepared. It says that the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. And that is the goal of Bible translation, that people will understand the words. That our, that's our prayer. Our prayer for these, as I mentioned, these 4,000 languages, this one and a half billion people that are still in need of some sort of Bible translation. Our prayer is that they will respond in the same way that the people of Ezra and Nehemiah's time did, that they'll respond with hearts that take initiative, that they're the ones seeking out the Word of God. They went to Ezra and asked him to bring it, that they take initiative to gather together unified for that purpose, that they're willing to sacrifice, to be there for hours and hours if need be, that they responded by blessing the Lord and praising Him, that they stood as a show of reverence and honor, that they gave their full attention, and then the extra effort was made to make sure that they fully understood. Whether they repented for the sins as they needed to or whether they rejoiced in God's salvation, the response was from the heart. I'd like to give you some examples. We're going to look at, at some of these verses more specifically. Again, in the Sunday school hour, I talked about how important it is in Bible translation to make sure we clearly and accurately understand the Word of God. I'm going to give you some examples from this passage as we're going to look at it in a little more detail um, to, to not only illustrate what we deal with in Bible translation and how we try to make a translation clear, but also just how we as students of the Word need to pay attention to the details and things we can learn from that. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to back up there. It says in Hebrew, literally, that they gathered as one man. Now, if we translate this into the gypsy, the Roma languages as one man, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's clearly a metaphor. It means, um, it, talk, it talks about completeness. You could translate it with a united purpose. First of all, as one man, they were all there. Nobody was left out, as far as we know. But also, they had the idea of being there in unity. The New Living says with a united purpose, or one of the commentaries says with one accord. So they gather together with a united purpose, and then the word scribe is a little bit misleading. It's accurate as far as it goes, but I don't think that's how we use the word nowadays. Um, it makes us think of someone who writes things down, someone who's a secretary or perhaps does dictation. And that's true, that a scribe could do that. He or she was literate and, and wrote things down, but that wasn't the main point. The main point wasn't that they knew how to write. The main point is that they were experts in the law of Moses. That was their job, not only to write, but to make copies of it, to study and interpret and explain. We see that the Levites, that's one of their jobs, was to explain it as well. So the Revised English Bible is correct here. It says, expert in the law of Moses. Or one of the translation handbooks by the United Bible Society says, a specialist who knew the law of Moses well. As I mentioned, we just finished translating the Gospel of Luke, and many times it uses the term scribes. So to be clear to the Roma, uh, in an earlier draft, someone used the word a writer, someone who writes. 
but that doesn't really communicate. So we translated it as a teacher of the law of Moses because that was the emphasis and the role that they had, that Ezra had as well. It's a clearer translation. He was not just a dictation secretary, but he was an expert in the law and was able to teach others. It also says book. Well, technically, in Hebrew, it just says writing, to bring out the writing. Book is not really an accurate translation here because um, a book for us means something that's, that's printed, right? It's bound, it's printed, um, and that's what was later called a codex. They didn't have books, codices, they only had scrolls. So it's important to, to make sure you're historically accurate. When you translate, you can't just change it to make it easier if you're changing something that actually happened. That's not allowed. You, can't, you can make things clearer, but you cannot change historic facts. That's, that's not allowed in translation. So it says that um, he opened the scroll. Another thing is, is the style of translation. Did you notice that if you look carefully, almost every sentence begins with and? And that's classic Hebrew style. I mean, almost every clause begins with and. But it's very poor English style, okay? If you gave an essay to your English teacher and every clause had and in it, every sentence started that way, you think, what is going on? It's just poor style. One of the things we do in Bible translation is not just seek to communicate accurately, but also in a stylistic way that's enjoyable. You want the people to enjoy reading it. Now, I will say this. We did a little bit of research to find out, and, and we, there's an older man in the village uh, near where we lived, and when you listen to him tell stories in the language, in the Roma language, they do use a lot of ands. So there's some balance in there. Sometimes it brings the story along. So for every language, you have to see how do you communicate? How do you put words and phrases together? How do you show the drift of an argument? In Hebrew, it was pretty much and all the time. But in other languages, it comes out as something else, and that's something to be aware of. In verse 2, it says the first day of the seventh month. Now, our seventh month is July, but that's not what this means. For the Jews, it was the month of Tishri. And the first day of that month often fell on the first day of fall, which is the autumnal equinox, which is September 21st, which happens to be my birthday. That's irrelevant, but I just had to say it. So normally when we give a date, we usually give the year, right? Um, but they didn't do that here. We know from, from the broader context and from uh, chronology that it was probably around 445 B.C. Now, when you're translating this, what should you do? Should you, should you say the first day of the month, of the seventh month? Should you say, like the New Living said, October 8th? It's a bit of a guess. Um, do you need to say the year as well? And that's a hard one when you're translating because we don't always know precisely when their calendar lines up with our Gregorian calendar. So probably it's better in a case like this to leave it pretty literal and just say first day of the seventh month and then add a footnote that it was in more than likely September, October 445 B.C. so that the reader has kind of a handle to know where it fits. Again, some things you put in translation to make it clear. Other things, if you're not quite sure, you, you leave them a little more ambiguous because it could go either way. Verse 2 says, uh, oh, this was the, what I was trying to show. So if you look in the inner circle there, you have our months. And on the outer circle, you have the uh, Israeli feasts. So if you go down to the bottom, the month of Tishri, and of course it's going around from 
uh, clockwise, you get to the Feast of Trumpets. So more than likely, it was right there, the very first, not more than likely, it definitely was, it was the first day of the seventh month, which is Tishri, and that was the Day of Trumpets, more than likely around our September, October. Now, verse 2 says literally, uh, they came together from man to woman, and everyone who understood to listen. That's a very literal translation, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, and it wouldn't in the Roma languages. When you say from man to woman in the context, it means men and women. In other words, from one to the other, inclusive. It included all the people. No one was left out. And that was um, rare in that context. Uh, the women were not often included in many of the gatherings, especially uh, for festivals, but especially when it came time to, for education. So this was really a mark of unity and total commitment. Men and women were there, which is very significant. And then the next phrase says, everyone who understood to listen, which means everyone who's able to listen and understand, understand what would be read. Again, with translation, you need to be careful because if you translate literally um, men and women and those who understood, does that mean that the men and women didn't understand? No, at least in English, we have to add the word others. In English, we need to say men and women and others who could understand because the men and women understood as well. So these are little things where you have to make sure that you're not miscommunicating even um, across languages. And there's, there's some implied information that the people, when they heard it um, in their language, didn't need, but which we need in English and other modern languages, or uh, specifically, in my case, when working with Roma languages. We have to realize that different languages have different ways of stringing things together, different ways of expressing things. Uh, the grammar, the syntax differ, and you can't always make a one-to-one -one correspondence from one language over to the other. So this means here that all the men and the women and the others who are able to understand, which surely means uh, children, uh, minors. The good news, uh, the good, uh, God's Word translation says any children who could understand what they heard. In verse 3, literally it says from light until middle of day. Now in, in more natural English, we would say from dawn. And for middle of day, we'd probably say midday or noon. And then it says literally the ears of all the people toward the scroll of the law. Now, that's what we call metonymy, where you take one part and it's standing for the whole. It wasn't just their ears paying attention. That's just a way to emphasize that they were listening and giving it their, their full attention. But it was the whole person. Okay, their minds were engaged as well. So saying that their ears were attentive doesn't mean that the rest of the person was totally out to lunch. It's a nice Hebrew idiom that doesn't always transfer over into, say, the Roma languages. So it might be better to say, and everyone was clearly listening, or everyone was paying rapt attention. Uh, New Living says, listen closely to. Today's English says, they listened attentively. And then in verse 6, I refer to this uh, earlier, blessed. Um, Ezra blessed the Lord. And yeah, blessed is an interesting word. That's, that's kind of a, a churchy word. We don't use it a whole lot, uh, unless you sneeze or something. But it's helpful to explain sometimes what that means. Bless, how do, you, how do you bless God? Does bless normally means to do something for someone else's benefit, to do something good for them, right? Um, so how do you bless the Lord? You're, you're mortal, he's uh, immortal. How are you going to do something good for him? Well, as I mentioned, it's probably here in the sense of praising God. It doesn't mean doing something good for him, but rather thanking him for what he has done. 
It means to thank God for something. Like when we say a blessing before we eat, we don't bless the food in the sense of make it better. Like Tim Hawkins says, bless these donuts and somehow molecularly change them, make them healthy. We're not blessing the food. We're blessing God. We're thanking God. We're praising God for his provision. So it's probably better in translation to say Ezra praised the Lord because then it's, it's much more clear. Um, Ezra praised God. He, he probably thanked him for the opportunity to be there, that they were back in the promised land, that they were able to gather and listen to his word. It says the great God. We had a challenge translating this because if you say the great God, does that mean there are other gods that are not so great? Um, it doesn't mean that. We know that because we have the larger context of the Bible. But if you hadn't heard this before, you might think, oh, this is one of many. But it's not. It means great God. We might need to translate for clarity and say um, God who is very great. Okay, it's not the great God as opposed to some little God over there. But Yahweh, the Lord, is great. He's the only one. And he is very great. In verse 6, it says the people answered. Um, that's interesting. Nobody asked a question, right? Normally when we say answer, it's only when there's been a question. So in English, we might want to say something like responded to or simply said. And that's what we ended up doing in, in translation. What, we, uh, what I would suggest is all the people said amen. Amen is another churchy word, another spiritual word that most Roma, a lot of people who haven't been exposed to the Bible, will not understand. Did you know that's not even a translation? It's just a transliteration. We just took the Hebrew and spelled it out in English letters. So of all things, that should be translated. People who grew up in church know what it means. Oh, that's what you say at the end of a prayer. But why? Well, because of the meaning being it is true or may it be or may it be so. So in other words, when Ezra said that, the people were agreeing to that. So in translation, it might be better to say, and all the people responded, it is true. May it be. All the people agreed. They all said it is true. And then it says they lifted up their hands. In that culture and in ours, that was an appropriate response to God in prayer. But when you translate, you have to be careful because these are what we call symbolic actions. They're actions that we do that contain meaning. They're not just random. In some cultures, um, they, for example, um, you know, they would interpret it as something totally different. Maybe it means to be angry or maybe it means to be upset. So sometimes it's not, a, not an issue. We know from the context and thankfully in our Roma translations, they, they are able to handle that as well. That it means when they lifted up their hands, it was a time of praise or reverence. But let's say they bowed their heads. To bow your head in that culture and in most cultures expresses humility, but not in all. So in some translations, you might need to be clear and say they bowed their heads in humility or they bowed their heads to show humility. I remember when we translated, uh, and it says that a leper came up to Jesus and fell on his face. You know, does that mean he tripped? You know, well, no, it's just a way of saying he humbled himself to the point of prostrating himself. So not all symbolic actions um, transfer well across cultures. The, it says that uh, when we read the passage of Josiah, he tore his clothes. Why would he do that? Well, in that culture, they didn't have very many clothes. They only had maybe a few sets. So if you have something so valuable and you're willing to destroy it, that's showing grief, intense pain. We don't do that now, but they did it in the Old Testament. They did it in the New Testament. And in translation, we would often say, and he tore his clothes in grief or in anguish. We, we explain what that symbol is all about. Now, moving on uh, in verse 
um, 7, it says that they helped the people to understand. They helped the people to understand. In, in Hebrew, it's literally, they caused the people to understand. And, but that's kind of awkward in English. Uh, we don't use causatives that way, and Croatian doesn't, and the Roma languages don't. How would we say cause to understand? We would say teach. So they were teaching them, or they were explaining it to them. The New Living says they instructed the people in the law of God. Or today's English, they explained the law to them. Now, verse 8 is kind of the, the linchpin of um, 7 and 8, the linchpin of kind of what I want to get at this morning. And, but I want to look at it because it's, it's kind of difficult. Um, in chapter 8, verse 8, there's a word that is quite difficult to understand, and therefore it's hard to know how to translate it. We've been reading the ESV, which says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. If you're using the King James, it'll say, so they read in the book of the law distinctly. Hmm, that's different. NIV, they read from the book of the law, making it clear. If you have the Christian Standard Bible or the New American Standard, they read out of the book of the law, translating. Or the Net Bible, they read from the book of the law, of God's law, explaining it. So the Hebrew is very difficult here, and there are basically four options of what, what it means. The word could mean distinctly, uh, to declare distinctly. You know, uh, there was a large crowd of people. We don't know how many, but a very large. It says everybody was there. And so if you have Ezra up on a platform and he's speaking, it's hard to hear. So they had perhaps repeaters, someone who would listen and then repeat it into a smaller group to make sure that those who were closer by could, could hear it under, and understand it, hear it distinctly. Another possibility for the meaning of that word is to break something down. And so what that means is maybe they went paragraph by paragraph explaining it. Maybe they broke it down and they were making sure it was pronounced correctly, uh, made sure that people understood where the accents went so they, you know, some words are different depending on how you accent it. Um, maybe they were explaining how the words held together, which is what we call syntax. Perhaps there was even a pause between paragraphs for the Levites to explain it to the people. A third option is the word could mean translate, as I mentioned that earlier. Uh, perhaps the people no longer understood Hebrew, or many of them didn't, and so it had to be translated into Aramaic. That did happen, and there were Aramaic targums. In other words, it was translated as the people understood less and less of Hebrew. Um, at least they have to, would have had to translate older Hebrew words, because Moses had written this a thousand years ahead of time, and languages do not stay the same. I remember reading Chaucer in high school, which was a nightmare. I had no idea what that thing was talking about, Beowulf. Well, in the same way, languages changed. Moses' Hebrew was a thousand years older than that of Ezra. So there had to be some translation going on. Or the fourth option is it could just mean more generally to explain. Perhaps they took the time to explain what it meant and even how the things were supposed to be applied. Remember, many of these Jews had grown up in Babylon in exile, they had no temple, they couldn't carry out many of the customs, and they'd forgotten. They just didn't know what to do with it now. So maybe they had to explain things, explain to the people, this is how you're to obey these laws. This is how you put it into practice. So more than likely, they didn't stand there for six hours just listening to reading. Um, there were pauses in there. There were breaks in the reading where things were explained, maybe repeated again and explained to the people. Maybe even a mini-sermon, an exposition to say, this is what it's talking about. So, as we draw this to a close, it is difficult to know exactly what they did, but the general sense is very clear. 
from verses 7 and 8. They didn't just read the old Hebrew. They made sure that the people clearly heard, distinctly heard, and understood. That's very, very clear from the second half of verse 8. It says, um, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Or the Christian standard says, and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was read. So that, brothers and sisters, as we kind of wrap this up, that's what Bible translation is all about. Doing everything we can, everything in our power to make sure that we and everyone in the world, if possible, has the word of God in a translation and in a way that they can understand. The goal of Bible translation is to give the meaning so that people can understand what they read or hear. I didn't bring this up, but in those statistics of all the languages, 400 of those languages are sign language. And when I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, these people are deaf, not blind. Why do you need sign language? Well, because a deaf person thinks differently. Their, their syntax is very different. Signage has certain limitations. I know of another missionary doing Bible translation for deaf people, and of course it all has to be video. That takes a lot of time and a lot more expense, and there's a lot more um, things you have to keep in mind when you're translating into a language that's not, that's not spoken, that is literally signed. So it's not just Translation may be what we're thinking of. Sometimes it's audio, putting it for those who they just, even if they, it was in print, maybe it's never been recorded and they just simply can't read and it needs to be put into audio so they can have access to it. So putting this all together, uh, just a second, just putting it together, I think the New Living kind of captured it well. It, it takes the whole verse and it says, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. There's another quote in your bulletin from Wearsby. It says, the Bible's not a magic book that changes people or circumstances because somebody reads it or recites it. God's word must be understood before it can enter the heart and release its life-changing power. Note that six times in this chapter, you can find understanding mentioned. Verses 2, 3, 7, 8, 12, and 13. The goal of Bible translation is life transformation. It has to be understood to enter the heart and the mind and to bring transformation of life. So in closing, what are four application points? How can we respond in the way that we see that Ezra and the people of his time responded? Let's do what Ezra did. Let's do what the Israelites, the Levites did. Let's respond the way that they did. Let's, for example, have the same heart that they had. Let's come to God's word in humility and adoration, because God is worthy of that, and his word is worthy to be listened to and obeyed. Let's make every effort to understand what God's word means. We're going for meaning here, not liturgy or recitation for the sake of formality, but understanding what it means. Thirdly, let's seek how, how we can help other people understand the meaning of God's word. And fourthly, let's seek God's face for how we can help in Bible translation around the world to get God's word to those who still need it. So for you, for your own life, how can you be involved? What can you do? I'm gonna start from the right and go to the left. You can recruit, you can share this message with others. Some people don't know that there's still need for missionaries around the world, that there's still a need for Bible translation. As I said, 4,000 languages, one and a half billion people still in need of translation. You can pray. I cannot overemphasize that enough. 
pray. Pray for missionaries. Pray for us. Again, please take our prayer cards. Sign up for our prayer requests. Why? Not just for formality. It's because it's, it's, it's helpful for the missionaries themselves and for the translators. In Sunday school, the question was asked, how can we pray for these? And there's so many things to pray for. Bible translation is a long, expensive, complicated, spiritual warfare-infested endeavor. We need people to pray, and you can do that. Sign up and get our sign up in the back and get our daily prayer request, a request for every day. If you're like me, I forget things, and oh yeah, those missionaries probably need prayer. But if you have something for every day, something simple, it's not, we're not going to spam you, it's just maybe one sentence, pray for this today. Giving, you know, we, we worship by our giving too. Missionaries need support. Missionaries need to have funds for their salaries. The translators, they, they have to be paid so they can give their full time to it. The Roma translators are paid. What about the computers we use and the software we buy and the, the trips and the travel and the books we need? All of that is giving. And then there's going. There is a huge need, and I kind of want to give this as a little bit of an altar call idea. Going. Don't think that missions is just for some other guy. It might be for you. Maybe you'll go for, you know, a week or so. Sometimes we have teams that go over. It takes a sacrifice. You're going to have to give up some of your time, maybe part of your summer or part of your Christmas vacation. And you go, and you put yourself in maybe some uncomfortable situations. You, you go work in a Roma village. we got 100 or 200 Roma kids climbing all over you, and the language is different. But you're there to teach them the love of God. You do a craft with them. You act out a skit. Even though you don't know their language, at least you can act it out. Things like that. We have teams that go. Uh, we need people who go for longer. We had a, a young gal who went over for uh, several months, and she was able to, to be there because it's not just the summer activities. We have weekly activities uh, with the different Bible studies and, and kids' meetings. Uh, we need people to go long-term. We need people who are willing to say, yep, that's what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, some of them will end up being virtual. You can do a lot uh, virtually, but some people need to go there physically. So that's kind of my challenge to you. How can you be involved in Bible translation and missions? You can recruit others, you can pray, you can give, and you can go. But then, of course, none of this matters if you don't know Jesus. So my final challenge to you is think about this. We've been talking about God's Word. We've been talking about the revealing of who He is and how we can bless Him and praise Him for all He's done and how... The Lord is our stronghold. He rejoices in us. We can rejoice. We don't need to go away in tears of repentance. There is a time for that, but then it leads to rejoicing because we've understood his provision. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you've never bowed your knee to him as Lord and Savior, that's the first step, and he will lead you on a journey. It won't be an easy journey. I won't lie to you. Uh, Jesus never pulled any punches. He said, if you're going to follow me, every single day you're going to die to yourself. You're going to take up your cross and anybody in the first century world hearing take up your cross knew exactly what that meant. It means to go to your death. Only a condemned criminal would pick up a cross because only he would carry it to his place of death. To die to yourself and say, Jesus, I'm going to give it all to you. You're worthy of it. Uh, you're worthy of my time. You're worthy of my sacrifice. You're worthy of my effort. And I bow my knee to you. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. And I do pray, Father, for those in this room and those watching the the stream, Lord, that they will be involved, that they will recruit others to share this message of missions and Bible translation, of, again, of over a billion people still needing it. And those who will go, those who will give, those who will pray regularly. And Father, for those who don't know you, that they will bow the knee to Jesus to know the joy uh, that you do give, that you are a strength in our stronghold. 
and that you are worthy of uh, all praise and that you have provided not only um, in the, the picture in the Old Testament with the sacrifices, but far more importantly, what it was pointing to, Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice who died, rose again, and forgives our sins when we bow our knee to him and believe in him as Lord and Savior. It's in his name and for his sake and on his merit that we pray. Amen.